Welcome to The Workplace, a podcast by Cal Chamber. I'm Matthew Roberts, the Labor Law Helpline Manager and Employment Law Counsel with the California Chamber of Commerce. So the weather is heating up here in California, and so is the state legislative session. We're at that time of the year where the framework of potential laws is coming into view, and we can really start to see the priorities of this year's legislative session. As always here in California, there are a significant number of employment-related proposals that could have far-reaching implications for most or all the businesses here in California. To review some of the most important proposals that we've seen thus far, we welcome back Cal Chambers policy advocate focusing on employment issues, Ashley Hoffman. Ashley, I know this is a really busy time for you at the legislature, so thank you for taking the time to join me today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Matt. So, you know, recently we had John to discuss AB 1993, that COVID-19 vaccine mandate proposal. Uh, but there certainly are a lot of significant non-COVID bills making their way through the legislature that certainly deserve to be highlighted uh, just based upon the impacts on the employer community. So jumping into this uh, right away, the first bill will address SB 1044, which is introduced by Senator DeRazzo, involves states of emergencies and workforce issues, which sounds like it would definitely be related to COVID, but it isn't just limited to COVID. So Ashley, what is SB 1044? Yeah, so SB 1044 um, would allow employees basically to refuse to come to work or refuse or be able to leave work um, if there is a state of emergency or emergency condition um, and they subjectively feel unsafe. Um, there were some amendments taken last night in, a, in Senate labor um, that would require the employee to now provide notice where feasible um, and did make kind of an effort to address, you know, not having this last through maybe an entire state of emergency, but um, help, narrowing it a little bit more down to kind of when there is a more um, imminent um, and ongoing, uh, you know, threat. Yeah, I think that state of emergency language was the first thing that really popped out to me, Ashley, because uh, we've been in a state of emergency for going on more than two years now here related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and I, I'm interested to see what kind of states of emergency or what is the limitations that we're starting to see come out of the bill that we're working towards to make sure, you know, we don't just have an ongoing state of emergency that allows employees to just leave. Right. And, you know, so I would say uh, we have three kind of large concerns about the bill. The first is even with the amendments, we do have some concern about what is really an ongoing risk. Right. Um, if you have an employee, uh, there's fires nearby. Right. And you have AQI over a certain threshold, even if Kalosha has deemed it safe to work, an employee could just leave or they could decide not to come to work that day, which takes me to my second concern is that it really takes the determination of what is a safe workplace completely out of the hands of Kalosha and other agencies and just puts it subjectively onto the employee so that if the employee does not like that the AQI is 100, for example, even though Kalosha has says that is perfectly safe to work in, the employee gets to leave or not show up for work. Um, and then finally, obviously have concerns about the impacts on first responders, uh, healthcare workers, other essential workers that either their very job duty is to help out in an emergency, or they are, of course, necessary in times of an emergency. For example, an ag worker that may need to tend to livestock, you know, um, that might otherwise perish, um, or, you know, certain crops or things that society really needs to be able to survive. 
So you mentioned that there were some recent amendments with um, some notice requirements in there from the employees, which, you know, is always something that we get asked on the helpline and in our seminars with regards to times that employees need time away from work, right? The employer would like some sort of form of notice so that they can plan operations. What does that notice requirement look like at the moment? Yeah, so it would require you to provide notice where it's feasible to do so. Um, it, it's very similar to what we see in other instances, right? For example, if you're taking medical leave, you know, there's a requirement if it's feasible for you to do so to give advance notice. But obviously, if it's not, um, then, you know, you would just have to kind of later, I think, identify, you know, why you were out. Um, and I will say, too, one amendment I forgot to mention is that this would now apply only to uh, states of emergency that are declared after the enactment of the bill. So something like the March 4th, 2020 COVID state of emergency would not apply. However, of course, if that was ever lifted and then a variant popped up or something and it was re-put back into place, then it would be covered under this bill. Yeah, and I think that's probably one of our biggest issues is how broad that state of emergency language could end up being. Um, now, what's the kind of litigation risk that's associated with this? Because with the with statutes and with laws that are, have a lot of ambiguity in it, employers are really concerned about making that misstep into litigation. So what's the litigation exposure with this one? My biggest concern is this idea of what would be, you know, considered to be discipline or an adverse action um, if an employee was to leave or fail to show up for work. You know, what we've seen in other litigation under the Fair Employment and Housing Act is that if you assign then that person's job duties to someone else, um, you know, there could be an allegation that they've been replaced. Um, and so it really does not provide the employer with flexibility, especially if we're talking about in an emergency situation, to be able to cover for employees that are out uh, further you know, this is in the labor code, so it would be fall under the purview of our favorite statute, PAGA. And normally, all health and safety provisions are in Division 5 of the labor code, which is subject to different procedural requirements under PAGA. You must first give notice um, to the Division on Occupational Safety and Health um, to be able to uh, investigate first um, before you can actually file a lawsuit. Because it's not placed in Division 5, um, an employee wouldn't have to do any of that. They would just file a lawsuit immediately. All right. Well, thank you, Ashley. Look forward to hearing some more updates on that one because it sounds like that one's going to um, trigger a lot of amendments and debates and things like that as it winds its way through the legislature. Uh, moving on to a bill that was not passed last year, but we did discuss it at the end of the legislative session last year. Looks like it's made its way back this year. Um, AB 2182, uh, this time introduced by Assemblymember Wicks, adds a new protected class to the California Fair Employment and Housing Act, otherwise known as FEHA. Um, now, in general, as we understand FEHA, it creates a significant list of protected classes, your sex, your religion, uh, marital status, age, um, a lot of different protected classes in here. And those really form the basis of protection from discrimination in employment actions. So, for example, we cannot be substantially motivated or motivated in part to fire somebody because of their race or to not hire somebody because of their age or a disability issue. So. With the addition of a new protected class, Ashley, what does AB 2182 um, propose to do? It proposes to add as a protected class, the class of family responsibilities. And that is a very broadly defined class. It would include any worker who has a child under 18 
or any worker who provides care either to a family member, whether or not they live with you, or anyone in your household, um, which is not limited to a family member. Uh, based on data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, um, about 33% or one third of workers do have a child under 18. Um, so the sheer number of people that this would cover would be quite expansive. And then additionally, um, there is a reasonable accommodation requirement in there, um, a, a requirement to also follow the interactive process that would apply where either like a school or other care facility is unexpectedly unavailable. Um, the employer would be required to accommodate the employee in that situation. So now you raised um, an important loaded term, really, and that's interactive process and reasonable accommodation, right? For those of us who are in human resources and management and employment law, you know, we know that those are issues that we have to cover with disability and religious based reasons for why somebody um, has an issue performing an essential function of their job. It, does this bill envision the same kind of interactive process for child care and for care of a family member? Yes, it does. And the failure to uh, engage in the interactive process is actually its own cause of action under FIHA, which is very concerning. So even if you do ultimately accommodate someone, if they don't think that you interacted with them in good faith, they can file a lawsuit on that basis alone. And this provides a really unique circumstance um, that makes it hard for the employer to actually engage in the um, interactive process because this is applying where you have an unforeseen event. So in, in reality, it's going to be a worker calling and saying, I can't come to work right now or I need to leave work right now. And so it's not actually giving you time to engage in the interactive process like you normally would have um, in most cases involving a disability or a religious belief. So what might be triggering for some people listening to this conversation is, wait, I thought we already had a leave in place, right, to cover care for a family member. The California Family Rights Act, you know, that was expanded um, fairly broadly, uh, effective January 1st of 2021. That allows an employee who's eligible to take up to 12 weeks of time off to care for a family member. And family member is pretty broad there. I mean, we're talking grandparents, uh, grandchildren, siblings, parent-in-laws, registered domestic partners, a lot of family members. Um, can you highlight how this bill would address family members for this specific purpose and family responsibilities? So family member, as defined in 2182, is actually far more broad than other statutes, for example, CFRA or paid sick leave. In addition to the, the standard family members that we think of, like spouse, child, parent, grandparent, it would also include any individual related by blood or whose close association is the equivalent of a family relationship. So essentially, you know, a, a friend um, really that you consider to be close, really anyone you would be able to take time off to provide care for. Yeah, really broad. Okay, finally, let's talk about uh, California's recent focus on uh, pay data reporting. Of course, um, you know, we are rapidly approaching this year's California pay data reporting for those employers with 100 or more employees. You know, and this is something that's been in effect since January 1st of 2021, where employers with that number or more employees had to report employee pay data based on race, ethnicity, and sex to the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing. Um, and that report must include all employees that work in California and out-of-state employees that report to a California establishment. So a significant number of employees there. The report is due no later than March 31st um, of the following year for that preceding year. So, for example, for 2021, your report for 2021 is due March 31st of 2022. Now, the report's distinctly different now from the longstanding EEO-1 federal report. 
um, that similar size employers must submit. So we already have this new requirement for pay data reporting here in California. And even though we have this relatively new requirement, the legislature is already proposing to expand the scope of the purpose of this law, as well as other aspects of pay, uh, pay data and pay data reporting. Um, and this is being done through a vehicle um, introduced as SP 1162 by Senator Limon. Ashley, under the current law, what does the DFEH do with those pay data reports it receives from employers currently? <laughs> Presently, the DFEH analyzes those reports in the aggregate. Um, they recently just released um, a, a brief report showing some trends, you know, as far as um, different races and genders and, and where they kind of fit in these different job categories like professionals versus service workers versus um, laborers, etc. Um, and so that was all in the aggregate. They're also allowed to use the reports for their own internal um, investigation or enforcement. So, for example, you know, if they get a claim about an employer, maybe related to race or gender discrimination, they may take a look at the report and look at kind of how within that company, you know, people are um, spread out throughout the different pay bands and, and the different job descriptions. They're also allowed, if they wish, to use this to investigate potential violations of the Equal Pay Act. Um, but all of these reports are presently confidential and they are not subject to our PRA request. And so that's what I think is a key component of SB 1162, because to my understanding, it looks like it expands the use of those reports. And what does it do with that expansion? And what are our concerns about that, Ashley? Our most significant concern is that it would require all of these pay data reports to be public. So you would be able to look up any company and see the data report that they submitted. A similar bill five years ago, AB 1209, that would have required publication of different pay data um, sparked a lot of interest among the plaintiffs bar. Uh, there was an article in the Sacramento Business Journal where a local uh, class action PAGA attorney said that if you put this online, I'm going to go through it and I'm going to use this to start, quote, hammering companies, um, basically meaning to file lawsuits against them and to use this, you know, in settlement demand letters, what have you. And so that's really our biggest concern, um, not only the litigation, but that we think, you know, this data is very broad. The, the job categories include things like professionals, administration, right? Um, that's going to encompass a lot of people. And actually, when the EEO was looking at requiring the same form um, for other companies around the nation to provide, there was concern about how broad it was. And the EEOC actually came out and said, well, we don't think this data is actually going to be used to show differentials in pay between you know, people with comparative jobs. So it doesn't really matter if you categorize people kind of differently or inconsistently. Um, and so our fear is you're going to take this data that's very broad and that does not actually meaningfully show if anything you know unlawful or inappropriate is going on, but that's exactly what it's going to be used for by plaintiffs or by the media or whoever. Yeah, I think that lawyer's quote was really powerful. Um, beyond the expansion, um, there are some other significant changes um, in SB 1162 to all sorts of different aspects of both the pay data reporting and some other things such as pay ranges. Um, Ashley, can you go through some of those other additions that are in SB 1162? 
Sure. Um, so in addition to the data reported now within each job category for each combination of race, ethnicity, and sex, you would have to report the median and mean hourly rate. Um, you would also instead having to you know, do a report for each establishment and a consolidated report, it would be a report for each establishment. Um, and then another big change is that you would have to disclose this a separate paid data report for any contractors that you use, um, as well as identifying the names of labor contractors that you contract with. All right. Well, as always, when talking about legislation, you know, these things are not yet law. That's really what Ashley's out there working on. And of course, they're subject to change. So continue to stay tuned to updates throughout the year as the legislative session goes on. Ashley, thank you for joining us and for providing your always excellent capital insights. Thank you, Matt. And thank you, listeners, for joining this discussion on the workplace. Please comment, share and subscribe to Cal Chambers podcast by visiting calchamber.com.